Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open it to the book of John, chapter 19, okay? John, chapter 19. John 19, and I'm going to do something a little bit out of the ordinary. While you're getting to John, also go to Zechariah, okay? So kind of maybe put a pen back there or uh, your bulletin or a piece of paper or something, uh, something to keep a, a finger there. We'll get to that towards the maybe the second half or the later third of, uh, of our time this morning. But John 19 is going to be our primary text, and we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 12, okay? So you can go ahead and, and find that. If you don't know where Zechariah is, I think it's the second to last book of the um, Old Testament. Okay, if, my, if I'm thinking right, yeah. The last one would be Malachi. The second to last would be Zechariah. So that should be relatively easy to find. John 19 and then Zechariah 12, which we'll get to at the end, okay? John 19. Uh, we're going to look at verses 31 through 37 here in just a moment. Uh, you know, I'm not funny enough or clever enough, but sometimes I jokingly, and maybe it's just because I'm a pastor and my, my mind is constantly on these things, but uh, I'm not funny or clever enough, so I don't want to say that I am, but sometimes I jokingly think about how much good content I would have if I were to want to be a Christian comedian. Uh, there is so much low-hanging fruit when it comes to comedy uh, in the things that Christians do. Some of the things are just silly. Some of them are kind of head-scratchers. Uh, I'll give you a few of those. I think that you could have a really good stand-up bit about potluck lunches. That's super, super easy. Like I said, just low-hanging fruit. It's so easy to talk about how hilarious potluck lunches are. You can talk about a lot of things. Um, one of the funny things, when I first came to Spring Hill, um, <laughs> I bet you I had four people, all men, by the way, but four people came up to me and said, and it was actually, you know what, it was my first day here because y'all were giving me the Q&A and a lot of you visited the table. I remember, Miss Linda, when you came and visited the table and talked about Tyler, and, and we talked with a lot of you different guys, but I probably had four people say, you need to go get you some food. Miss Mary Clemens' at fried apple pies will be gone before too long. And it's like, that's just so easy to laugh at and talk about. You can talk about the hot items. So it's like, you got to get early in line, but you also want to be a servant, right? It's like the first is last, last is first, but I really want to get that dish. Uh, you know, you could run wild with that kind of thing. And not just that. You could also talk about the mystery of potluck lunches. Like that looks good, but... You never know, right? You never know. Um, and then you're thinking, well, I don't know, like, is this lady behind me? Maybe she made this, and I don't want to say anything that, you know, I don't know whose food I'm eating, so maybe they're behind me in line. I don't know, you know, potluck lunches, you could go crazy with that. Uh, you could also talk about how our offerings are public. You know, you pass the offering plate, and everybody sees what you do, right? And I know all of you, somewhere deep inside, are thinking, like, I'm being watched. You know what I mean? Like people can see what I'm doing and I, if I don't drop the money. Well, I did it last week, but I don't want to tell them that because that would be arrogant, you know, and that that's kind of on the, on the mind. Uh, then you could just nail the fact that some of you guys act like all is lost. You know, if someone takes your seat on a Sunday morning, that's easy. That's so easy. If a guest comes in and you don't want to, you want to be loving, but at the same time they're on your territory and you know, that's easy stuff. Um, one of my favorites is, is whenever, you know, maybe like you got something in your eye and we're praying, you know, and you're kind of like, you know, and then you, and then suddenly you really, you catch someone else's eyes and you're like, oh no, they're going to think that I was looking around during the prayer time. And then we had this awkward eye contact and it's almost like now we're in cahoots. Like we committed a crime together or something. We have to keep it quiet. You could talk about it for, I mean, there's so much content, but one of the things, you know, <laughs> 
the church does a lot of things that outside looking in, if you had no familiarity with Christendom and, and the church life, then outside looking in, some of our song titles uh, would could be titles of horror films. I mean, scary movies. Listen to some of these song titles that are in your hymnal. There's power in the blood. Okay, I mean, that's like a Friday the 13th movie or something, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of eerie sounding. Obviously, you know that it's not eerie for a lot of reasons, but uh, another one, are you washed in the blood? Whew. You ever said carry? That comes to mind. You know, that's, that's kind of a creepy sounding song title. Now, we know it's not creepy, but I'm just, I digress. But there's one that I want, and all this is building up to this, but there's one song uh, that, that stands out to me that kind of fits this bill, and that there is a fountain filled with blood, right? Whew. That is, that would be a rated R one for sure, right? There's a fountain filled with blood. But here's the thing, man. That, that sounds like an eerie song, but it is one of my all-time favorite hymns in your hymn book. It is beautiful. And what sounds eerie and what sounds kind of strange and creepy is really glorious. And what we're going to look at today is really what those songs are based on. And Miss Linda even talked about it. We just sang, you know, how great thou art. And it talks about the blood of Christ being nailed to the cross. And those are gruesome details. It's murder. It's violent. It's gruesome. But this eerie moment in John where he talks about Jesus being stabbed in the side and blood and water coming from his side, it sounds eerie and it sounds nasty. It's grotesque and it's off-putting. But listen, church, it is beautiful. It's life-giving. And it's instructing. And so I want to look at this passage today and take away from it, not the grotesque and sort of the off-putting things, but the glorious and life-giving things. All right? So let's look at it. John 19, verses 31 through 37 together. John 19, 31 through 37. It's on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible, but I hope that you do. We're going to walk through the text together, okay? John 19, um, 31 through 37. This is what the Word of God says. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. There's the criminals on each side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is a short passage, uh, but I want to take away a couple of really neat things that we're going to see here. And if you're taking notes, we'll get to that towards the end of our time, like the second half or so. But most of this is going to be contextual. It's going to be kind of setting the stage. Uh, Before we get to the meat of the passage and what's going on in the passage, uh, we got to talk about what came before it. And we've been in John for months and months and months. And so these last few weeks, what we've seen is that Jesus has already been crucified, obviously. The highlight of that was that Jesus was absolutely innocent, and yet he died as an absolutely guilty man, which doesn't make any sense unless he bore the guilt of another man, right? And so Jesus, though absolutely innocent, became the curse, became guilty, innocent for the guilty. 
Then John highlights Jesus' godness, right? Not just in this chapter, but he's really been highlighting that all throughout the book of John, that Jesus is divine, that he is God-made flesh. He's not some hopeless sufferer, but he is a sovereign savior. And he's not out of control in these moments, but he's absolutely in control. Last week we saw, and Brother James preached from the passage just before this one, that he cried out right towards the end of his life, it is finished. And yet, in a very strange way, Jesus isn't finished, right? He cries out it is finished because the work is accomplished. Jesus has paid the penalty, and yet, he ain't done. Because we know what comes next, right? So while it is finished, he also isn't quite finished. But, while he is dead, even while his sacrificial body hangs lifeless, his corpse is a symbol with which John teaches his readers concerning the power of the cross. And so we're going to walk through verses 31 through 35 first and then backload some uh, some points and things that we can write down on our notes for verses 36 and 37. But let's start with verse uh, 31, okay? It says, Since it was the day of preparation, we talked some about that last week, the day of preparation of the Passover, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Now, this is kind of a strange detail, but again, John tells us this for a reason, so I want to kind of get you uh, up to speed on what exactly is going on here. The Roman people, whenever they crucified someone, these weren't the Jewish people that were doing the crucifixion, the Romans were the ones that actually uh, enacted capital punishment. And so the Romans would normally leave men hanging, or women hanging, until they died. Uh, A lot of times they didn't suffer the types of beatings that Jesus did, and so they would leave them hanging for days even. It would take a lot of time for a body to to completely uh, die. Even the cleanup, they wouldn't take the bodies down and, and, you know, bury them or anything like that. The Roman soldiers, they didn't care. And so a lot of the time, they would leave the cleanup to the vultures. They would leave the body up there. They're dead. We're not in a rush. Let the vultures pick at them, and, and then we'll kind of take care of the rest. So the cleanup is minimal. Well, the, see, the Jews, as you see in this passage, they had an issue with that in this case. Not because of the man, not because of Jesus, but because of themselves. They believed that according to their law, the Mosaic law, that if a person was hanged overnight, it didn't just curse the person. Now, anybody that was hanged on a tree was cursed to them, right? According to their their law. But if someone was hanged and stayed there overnight, it cursed not just the person, but it also cursed the land. That meant famine, sword, whatever it may be, it was a bad thing to have on your land if someone was hanged overnight that was a Jewish person. And so Calvary was on the edge of Jerusalem, uh, meaning right outside of the outskirts of the city. So if if this man was cursed, no big deal. But if the Jerusalem was cursed, that would be a bad thing. This is their capital city. That would be a bad thing. Especially it would be a bad thing if they were cursed on the special Sabbath. That is the Sabbath that is approaching the Passover. And so it makes sense that they would then go to the Roman officials and say, hey, we have a request. Uh, Speed up this process. Why don't you go take care of this? Make sure he dies quickly. We can take care of it. That way this guy isn't hanging in agony overnight, bringing a curse upon the land. It says that they were instructed to break the people's legs. Now, that's a little strange, right? Does that mean that the pain would expedite things? Maybe a little bit, but that's not the main reason that they did this. The Roman guards would take iron mallets, and they would go to the people that were still alive, and they would shatter the bones in their legs, smashing against their legs this iron mallet. Now, listen, the nails were, were threefold, right? They had a nail here, 
and a nail here, and then there was a nail that went through both feet. And so, I don't know if you can see me, but imagine, you guys have seen like uh, images and things of Jesus, uh, you know, a portrayal of that, but imagine the feet sort of crossed, one on top of the other, and then one nail going right through that hard part of the top of your feet. And so they have these three nails. Well, the thing is, because there was a nail that was driven through the feet, I mean, there's no way to really mime this, and you've probably never been in this situation, but if your body's hanging there, and all of the gravity is pulling it down, your chest cavity closes, and you can't breathe. And so they had to push up on that bottom nail, and imagine the, imagine the agony, right? Pushing up on that bottom nail in order to open up the chest cavity just to be able to breathe. Well, it makes sense now, right, that breaking the legs would prevent the victim from being able to push up and open the chest cavity and be able to breathe. And so their arms, they could only push up so much with those, and eventually their arms would tire out, and then they would suffocate. And so the pain or the blood loss wasn't really what killed them. A lot of times, if they broke their legs, they were suffocating them. And this is why they asked the Romans to go and break their legs, to expedite this process. But there was no need with Jesus. We see this in the next verses, 32 and 33. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Basically, there's no need to speed up the death process of a dead man. Now, Jesus may have died faster because his beatings were double. His lashings were to the maximum. The other gospel authors tell us that. They literally nearly beat him to death. The crucifixion was just icing on the cake, so to speak. They almost killed him just by the beatings. And so he died relatively quickly. Still, they wanted to ensure that Jesus was dead. And so we see in verse 34 that they have a way to look at that. But one of the soldiers, verse 34 pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now we're going to talk about this blood and water thing in a couple of different ways. The first way is going to be more surface level. I think the next one is going to be a little more in depth. There's a couple of things I think are going on here. Number one is physical and contextual. The other is symbolic and theological, which we'll handle that last one at the end of our time, okay? But the first one, uh, it's contextual, it's, it's physical. John is emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. Jesus really died, he really bled, they, they stabbed him open, and he really leaked blood and water, just like any human being would in this situation. Now, why would John want to emphasize Jesus' humanity? Well, you've got to remember that this is a real uh, treatise, a letter written by a real man in a real time with real situational problems. John uh, is, is writing this in the late first century, which means the church had been around for a few decades. And just like today, there are many false teachers. There are many false teachers. You can see this in John's writing that he is even combating. And not just John, Peter, Paul, James, all of them are addressing specific things, false teachings in their culture to say, no, 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 not this thing. No, this thing instead. John does this even really discreetly. At the time that John is writing this gospel, there's a people group that believed in something called docetism. Uh, there were docetists, and I don't expect you to know what that is. Literally, that means it seems. They were the it seemsists. Uh, they were a branch of Gnostic people that believed that they had a secret knowledge, and they were the only ones that held this knowledge. And so they wanted to, uh, put, to, to put it in a 21st century way, they were woke and nobody wasn't. Or nobody else was. And so they were the first woke ones. They were the Gnostics, the Docetists. And their uh, wokeness, so to speak, was that they believed that Jesus was divine, 
but he wasn't really a man. And that every seemingly man thing that he did was an illusion or, or we would say like a, like a hologram or something. Like it, it seemed real, but really Jesus was just making us see something that wasn't actually the case. In other words, he claimed, uh, you know, or the people claimed, yeah, Jesus really died. He was really a man. They would say, no, 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 it's an illusion. It's not real. He didn't die because he was divine. To them, he could not possibly also be human if he was entirely divine. Does it make sense? He couldn't possibly be human if he was also completely divine. And so we see here in this detail that John is responding to that heresy. It's very common that that heresy is what's going on in this culture. John is responding to that. What John is saying is, listen, he was stabbed in the side and his body, his actual body, it leaked actual body fluid. And it's not just here in this passage that we see that John is combating this heresy. In John chapter 1, verse 14, which James read just a few minutes ago, we saw that John wrote down the word became what? Flesh, skin, meat. Do you know why he said that? Because of the competing heresy of the culture. So John has a very clear agenda, and that is to destroy the heresy that Jesus wasn't 100% God and 100% man. And so John attacks this modern-day heresy, which makes sense of his very next statement in verse 35. He says, He who saw it has borne witness. In other words, it's for real. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, it is almost certain that John is speaking of himself in this passage. He later talks about himself in the third person. Uh, Once again, the purpose that he says here is that you also may believe. It's the purpose of what he's writing is to change people's lives. This makes me think of, and really this is a a popular theme that we see in the book of John, is a trial motif. It's the theme of of being in court. Uh, Some of you guys watch court dramas and things like that. Uh, My mom used to love watching Matlock. That's like... Yeah, I'm not going to comment on that. Okay, uh, so she loved watching Matlock, and so I grew up with the whole, and I understand the trial situation and the person that's a witness. John is, is giving us a metaphor of a trial, okay, and he's the witness. Now, the goal of the witness is to tell the facts exactly as they are, to convince the juror or the judge of exactly what events transpired. And he's saying, I'm the witness, okay? This isn't hearsay. I didn't hear this through the grapevine. I was there. I was at the feet of the cross and I watched them take the spear and put it in the God-man's side and real blood and real water came out. He was a man and yet he was God. He's made that very clear, right? I was there, he is saying, not hearsay. And I'm saying these things that you may believe that they actually happened. And we'll see later he's going to say that you may believe and not only believe, but that you may have life. And here's the thing, folks. John is pleading to us the same thing. You may think, That was a long time ago. I mean, how can you really validate these things? That's exactly what John is saying. He's like, I realize that you weren't there. The people that I'm writing this to, you weren't there. But I'm a real man, and you love me, and you trust me. I was there. This isn't hearsay. I can testify to it, and I'm telling you the truth. Well, believe what? Believe that he is calling people to respond. And John is calling us to respond the same way that he's calling his readers to respond initially to three different things. And so if you're taking notes today, this is going to be kind of our structure. Three principles within the fountain. Three principles within the fountain. The first is to remember that God is in control in life's chaos. Three principles within the fountain. Remember that God is in control in life's chaos.
Remember that God is in control in life's chaos. We see this theme of Jesus foretelling and fulfilling himself over and over. We've seen it many times already that Jesus uh, foretold his arrest. He foretold his betrayal at the hands of Judas. He foretold the type of death that he would die, which is a cross death. He foretold Peter's denials. And really the list goes on and on. And the reason that John tells, tells us all these things is to emphasize Jesus is God. Jesus is the God man. He is uh, all knowing and he is sovereign over all things. Look at verse 36. We see this. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Read that again. These things, all these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And we're going to stop right there. Okay, so we've already seen that Jesus is foretelling and fulfilling, foretelling and fulfilling, foretelling and fulfilling. And here we see it once again in verse 36 that there's something that happened here. The stabbing in the side, the blood in the water come down, his legs weren't broken. Why did those things happen? So that you know he's God. That he is fulfilling the scriptures. We see two Old Testament, Old Testament fulfillments that we're going to see in the next couple of verses. Now, why would John and Jesus want us readers to know that in these moments that God was at work? Why would he want us to know that in these moments God was at work? Because in the harshest and the vilest of circumstances, isn't it easy to lose comfort, to lose joy, to lose peace? to lose trust, and it's easy to wonder if God is even aware of the suffering that you're going through. It's easy to ask those questions. It is so easy to ask those questions. But listen, Christian, God is more than just aware of the chaos that often floods your life. He's more than just aware. He's in control. He's in control. And I've said this a week or a couple of weeks ago, but listen, y'all, God uses tragedy to bring you nearer to him. God uses tragedy to bring you nearer to Him. Last night, um, I got word that my grandmother, who a lot of you guys know, uh, she was here for revival. Um, this is my grandfather, Gene, who was here and did our revival. His wife, Dorothy. Uh, last night, she was having some heart issues, and they took her to the emergency room. And um, they said that her heart was stopping a couple of times. It stopped for five to ten seconds, and then it would start again. And so she's having a really hard time. Um, they're going to put a pacemaker in probably tomorrow morning if, if things still are, are consistent enough. But it was a, it was a pretty scary situation. And um, we're not really sure what the what the immediate future holds. But uh, pray for her. It's kind of a, a tangent, but pray for her, if you will, and pray for my family, my mom especially. Uh, she's there with them right now and, and Brandon. Um, but here's the thing. In that tragedy, and really what could be a greater tragedy, um, in the last few hours, I've been praying more. Um, our family is fervently seeking God. We're seeking understanding. In short, we're leaning on God. We're leaning on Him. Why do you think that is? Because potential tragedy has brought us nearer to Him. That's what God does. God uses tragedy to bring you nearer to Him. And so when life is falling apart, the proper response isn't, God, where are you? The proper response is, God, I need you. I run to you. I lean on you. I don't know what you're going through. But I do know that God intends to use your turmoil to draw you nearer to the only one who can give you comfort through it. That's just the truth. That's just the truth. Second principle within the fountain. We're going to go kind of quick through these, okay? Second principle is to rest that Jesus paid so I don't have to. To rest that Jesus paid 
so I do not have to. There are two passages, as I said here in verse 36 and 37, that are fulfilled uh, through Jesus' corpse. Isn't that amazing that God is still at work even though the Son of God is currently dead? It's, it's really amazing. God is at work even through the Son of God's corpse. And I want to hit, hit on both of them, okay? Because they are both glorious. Look at all of verse 36. We're going to include the, the second part of it too, okay? For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Here it is. The Scripture fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now the source of this quote is likely Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 as well as Numbers chapter 9 verse 12. Annually the people of God, Israel, they would sacrifice a Passover lamb which was instructed to them uh, in the Old Testament in, in Exodus chapter 12. Now the reason that they would sacrifice this Passover lamb, this perfect spotless lamb, this little animal, is because it was to remember a time that God provided a lamb to bear their sins and graciously passed over the sins of God's people by pouring out death on this little lamb substitute. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 kind of puts this in perspective and says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Passover, the way that they did that was that the forgiveness of sins came because God poured out his wrath on this animal. Someone or something would bear death, would bear the wrath. And God graciously passed over the guilty party at the initial Passover. And now annually, they recognized that event, and that would remind God's people that He is their God, and He is a God who saves. Now in Exodus and Numbers, stipulations were given to this Passover lamb that were annually to be given. I mentioned this passage in Exodus 12, verse 46. This is what it says, that the Passover lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. And listen, you shall not break any of its bones. You shall not break any of its bones, the Passover lamb. Now that's the fulfillment number one that we see, and we're going to come back for its significance. But look at the second one in verse 37. And again, Jesus, or again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Okay, let's look at Zechariah chapter 12. Okay, go ahead and flip over to Zechariah chapter 12. I told you that we were going to get to that. Second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah 12. We're going to see in this a prophecy that anticipates a time that Israel will find themselves in hopeless peril because of their sin, right? Their sin of idolatry has gotten them in trouble in this prophecy, but that God would intervene with a shepherd to rescue his people. Zechariah 12, look at verse 10. This is the salvation. It says, God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as, he, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It says that they're going to look on him whom has been pierced. The word right there means that has been stabbed to death. This shepherd that God would provide would rescue God's people from the peril they brought on themselves by their own idolatry, but it would mean that he would die. This shepherd would be a shepherd of salvation, a shepherd that would save God's people from their own sin, but he would die in the process and mourning would ensue. You see, these Jews would weep 
And they would mourn at the piercing of this shepherd who took on death that they may live. So why does John mention this as a fulfillment? And keep your finger there in Zechariah, okay? Why does God, or why does John mention this as a fulfillment passage? Well, it's a fulfillment passage because of the good news of the gospel. It's a fulfillment passage because of the good news of the gospel. You see, we are the Israelites of old that need a Passover lamb, bones intact, who can become death that we may escape it. And here's the good news that we saw in verse 36, that God has graciously passed over the sins of men and instead He has poured out His wrath on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And this event is happening on a special Sabbath The time that they wanted Jesus to die quickly so that they could take him down because they were celebrating the Passover. The time that they they recognized that God is a God of salvation and yet unknowingly they have crucified the true and permanent Passover lamb for the same purpose that God slayed the lamb in the Old Testament of Exodus and that is to be the salvation for the sinners that do not deserve it. Not only that, fulfilled in the Passover passage of his bones not being broken, but also, we're not just about, we're not just like the people of Israel that need a Passover lamb. You are much like the people of God in Zechariah. Overcome and hopeless against your enemy. Sin. Your enemy of death. Completely overcome. Needing salvation. Needing a shepherd to be provided to take away the punishment. To take away the punishment of the sin of idolatry. And yet, God, in His grace and mercy, the same way that He promised to give a shepherd who would be pierced, the good shepherd gave His life for you that He may rescue you from your own peril. It's fulfillment. It's the gospel. And so here's a message that I want to leave you with as far as the principle goes. Rest that Jesus paid so that you don't have to, so that I don't have to. My point is, don't try to earn what has already been given to you. Don't try to earn what has already been given to you. I use the word rest on purpose because it's putting your faith and trust in another. Rest. Don't try to earn what has already been given to you. John Piper in his book, Desiring God, said that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Church, God doesn't want you to earn his favor. He wants you to worshipfully rest in the favor granted you by the Passover lamb who took away your sin. Rest. And that's why our gatherings as a church, they're not works-based. These gatherings are a worshipful rest. This should never feel like a burden. Church should never feel like a burden. It's a place that you come to rest in the fact that, you know what? I wasn't good enough this week. Praise God that Jesus was. It's a worshipful rest. Our prayers are to be a worshipful rest. God, I've messed up again this week. God, today, I've been so broken. I've been so miserable in my own filth, depravity, and sin. I worship because I'm able to talk to you because it's not based on what I'm able to do. It's a worshipful rest. In fact, our recovery from sin is a worshipful rest. You ever feel just downtrodden and horrible because you have failed to make war on the sin that so frequently visits you? It's a worshipful rest because even in those moments, we're reminded that your good standing before God isn't based on anything that you've done. It's based on everything that Jesus has done. It's a worshipful rest. A daily dose of the gospel. Finally, 
the third principle within the fountain. Reserve worship for God alone. Reserve worship for God alone. We've been in John long enough to know that when a detail stands out as a little bit strange, there is almost always a special reason that John included that very strange thing. So let's revisit this blood and water thing. What's the deal with that? I mean, isn't that a little strange? We can go back to all the songs that we sing. It's a little strange without some context, isn't it? So what's the deal with this blood and water thing? I'm going to reread verse 34, and then I'm going to reread verse 37. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus is the good shepherd that was pierced in John chapter 19. The saving, dying shepherd is pierced in Zechariah chapter 12. I want you to look back at Zechariah, okay? Because the very next verse of Zechariah is very, very important to the people that will be reading this passage. The very next uh, chapter, I mean, verse uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it's just the next few verses down. It says, on that day, when, when this man is pierced, all right, the shepherd, on that day, there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this fountain's purpose, here it is, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. A fountain. A fountain opened by the piercing. Now this would be a literal fountain. The reason the shepherd came to die and to save was to rescue them from their peril caused by their idolatry. The literal fountain here is that God would supply for them a fountain that they could use to make themselves ceremonially clean from their sin. They could wash in this river that God would provide. But here's the thing. Readers of John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37, especially verse 37, when they see this fulfillment of Jesus being pierced and a fountain of water and blood flowing from him, they would doubtless be drawn to the fountain of water and blood flowing, not from Jesus' side, but not from a river. Or from a river, yes, but not just from a river, but from Jesus' side itself. And here's the thing, that river is not just a river of water. It's a river of water and blood. It's a fountain that is a cleansing flood. We sing about that, right? A fountain flowing from the side of Jesus that is a cleansing flood. And it's cleansing in two ways, water and blood. Two ways, blood and water. Now we know that the washing of blood doesn't really a washing physically, but it's an atoning. Right? How can someone be made clean unless blood is satisfied, given for them? The blood is meant to atone. It's meant to wash the penalty of sin. And so we've already talked about that. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus became our Passover lamb so that our sins could be washed white as snow. Beautiful, beautiful gospel imagery. But there's a second aspect of this fountain here. Yes, there's a fountain of blood. But there's also a fountain of water. Now you do something hopefully every day or so. To cleanse your body, it's a fountain of water, right? It's a shower. And the purpose of that shower is to clean yourself. And it's the same thing that's being talked about here. This fountain of water is meant to make clean. Folks, you have been washed. You have been cleansed cleansed by the fountain of Jesus' blood. And now, like Israel, the message here is very clear. Idols got you in trouble. Idols were the reason that I sent this shepherd to save you from your problem, from your own peril. And now 
go and be washed of those idols. The next verse, I think, in chapter 2 talks about doing away with the idols, doing away with the falsities among the people of God. In other words, it means you've been saved. Now go be clean. You've been saved. You've been washed in the blood. Now go be clean. It kind of brings back to mind when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And he said, he said, Peter said, don't just wash my feet, wash my entire body. And he says, you don't need to be washed all over your body, only your feet, because you've already been washed. You've been made clean, but you have a daily ongoing need to be made clean. You have been washed, and yet you have the daily need to continually be washed. Why? Because they, like us, struggle with idols. We struggle with idols. Maybe thinking, well, I don't have a, a wooden statue of Buddha in my house. And so, contextualize this thing for me. Well, here's the thing. Idolatry doesn't mean that you're bowing down physically to something. It can mean that you're bowing down emotionally to something. Idolatry is elevating anything to a place where only God belongs. It means elevating anything to a place where only God belongs. And we can really figure this out by asking ourselves a simple question. Is walking with Jesus the aim of each category of my life? Is walking with Jesus the aim of each category of my life? Your work, your weekend. I mean, think about your weekend, for example. Is your weekend's schedule, is it worked around uh, the importance of church or is it worked around the importance of football or social events or going and sitting in the deer stand? How do we frame the value of our weekend? Well, it tells us what our aim is. Is it walking with Jesus or is it making an idol? How do I frame my social media habits? Do I frame my social media habits around how do I glorify God or how do I feed my addiction to give me pleasure, to know information? Is Jesus the king over that category? It means to frame your marriage around honoring Jesus, not about honoring yourself, not about honoring uh, your time, not about being selfish and, and prideful. It means being a husband that loves your wife sacrificially. It means being a wife that submits lovingly to your husband and being a husband that receives that submission in love and grace and humility. Framing your marriage, not about what they can do for you, but what has Jesus done for me? And then how can I show my wife that? How can I show my husband that? I mean, structuring your parenting, not around yourself and not around them, but around Jesus. Brooke and I talk about this all the time. And listen, we're rookies still. All right? Our kid's not even five years old yet, and I understand that. We're rookies. We're total bums. I get it. We're bad parents. So whatever you want to say, I don't care. Listen, here's the thing. I never realized how selfish I was until I got married. And then I didn't realize how selfish I was until I had kids. It's a whole other ballgame, right? And it's so easy to parent and to husband or wife in a selfish way. It's so easy to cling to yourself. And here's the thing. It's easy to parent in a God or in, in a child fearing way to give them everything that they want, to just want to make them happy, to just want to make them stop fussing. But here's the thing. The easy thing and the right thing are not always the same thing. The easy thing and the right thing are not always the same thing. <laughs> Shiloh, I didn't mean, I didn't intend to say this, but like my daughter, she's getting to this phase where it's like, I don't want to. Okay, I do things every day that I don't want to, right? Uh, and that's what I told her. And she said, I don't want to do this. And I sat her down. Like she, One day she didn't want to come to church, right? And I sat her down and I said, listen, Shiloh, mommy and daddy do things every day that we don't want to do. 
That's tough. And that's part of life. And she cried and she screamed and she fussed at me. But guys, it would have been so easy to just say, okay, you can just stay home with mom if it'll keep you quiet. The easy thing and the right thing are not always the same thing. It's easy to structure your parenting in a way that glorifies your children. It's easy to structure your parenting in a way that lacks discipline. To structure your parenting in a way that satisfies the the physical or, or the immediate uh, emotional needs of your child. You know what is a great example of that is is sports teams and travel ball is, is, a, is a common one. Or just not prioritizing worshiping with the body. Um, or not having hard conversations and asking them if they're reading the Bible. Or not going and reading the Bible with them and praying with them before they go to bed. It's easy to not do those things. It's kind of awkward. I'm not good at it, you may think. But that's so easy to cop out. Guys, the easy thing and the right thing are not always the same thing. Your children need you. They need to be parented by you. They need to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Who else is going to do it? You get your kids more than anybody does. The question remains, and it may not seem this way, but not doing those things in a way that honors Christ first is idolatry. It's idolatry. Playing sports. Do you play sports as an idol or as a vessel and an avenue and a vehicle to worship God? The way that you dress. Do you dress to satisfy your own cravings and attention? Or do you dress in a way that is, is, is in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Your speech. Do you talk in a way that glorifies God or in a way that pumps yourself up and makes yourself gratified? And the list can go on and on. The question is very simple. Is walking with Jesus the aim of each category of your life? That's what it means to be daily washed. That's what it means to take the water and be constantly washed in the water. You see, when walking with Jesus is not the aim of each facet of your life, you have elevated something to a place where only God belongs. And it may only look like travel ball. It may only look like being on social media four hours a day. It may not seem that big a deal, but it's idol worship. It's idol worship. And if we're not real about that, We're just nailing Jesus to the cross again. Reserve your worship for God alone. Be cleansed from idols in the fountain. But I think that a comforting word needs to be said here because if you're like me, you fail at this. (laughs) You fail at this. This morning, I I mean, I was sitting here during our first song and just praying and saying, God, I'm so uh, unworthy to do what I'm about to have to do. Heart wise, you're not good enough to go and preach this word. And I was absolutely right. But somebody's got to do it. See, I'm not a saint better than you. I'm a saint just like you. And that is a saint that's saved by grace that constantly fails but rests in the good work of Jesus. And that's all of us. Trust and remember that you have been washed in the blood and rest in that good news. You shouldn't leave this place beat up and downtrodden. You should leave this place uplifted because while you were still sinning, obviously, and we fell short, fall short every day, that's why Jesus died for us. And I think finally a good way to close is how I began with that first point is to remember that even though you may feel in turmoil, you may feel stressed out, you may feel in a time of chaos, especially as the holiday season approaches, let us be reminded that God is in control. You know, Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. And he's about to make his way over there. But that corpse didn't stay a corpse very long. Because God is working all things together for the good of those that love him. And that's our message. We're going to close the service with a song. 
uh, a song of response in just a moment. That song is a song that, um, like I began, it has a, a creepy title. <laughs> There's a fountain filled with blood. But we know that this isn't a scary song. It's not a sad song. It's not a song that scares us at all. It's a song of glory. I'm going to read the, a couple of verses of this. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. You know what that last part means? Redeeming love is love that's not contingent on your goodness. It's love that's not going anywhere. It's love that even when you are constantly willing your way away from God, it's love that is still intact. And that is our theme until the day that we go to be with Him in glory. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and loving above all else.